bam, bam, bam. What is good, Hollywood? Welcome back to Life in Coronavirus Isolation and another episode of Getting Down with Chris Brown, bam, 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 where we cover all of the most sizzling hot topics in the universe. My goal here is to remove the barrier between entertainment and education. And by doing this, I definitely get to entertain myself as I'm locked up in the Sheraton Apartments on day 8 out of 14. Already past the halfway mark. So I'm nearly there. Not really, but I'm, I'm looking at the bright side. But in all honesty, it's, uh, it's quite the killer. Like, uh... It kind of reminds me back of when I was like when I was a young uh, you know a young boy and I used to act up and you know when I'd uh, cause a bit of mischief and then my mum and my dad would uh, tell me I'm grounded, send me to my bedroom for a few hours, and that's kind of how this situation makes me feel like right now, except on steroids, way worse. Um, not being able to leave my room, I can't go out into the outside world, I know, first world problems. But uh, the hardest thing so far is just not being able to sleep, because I'm not utilising anywhere near the amount of energy I usually would, but I've found a little, uh, a little trick, take half a zanny and uh, it makes me sleep like a baby. So at the moment, I'm just frothing to get back to the gym, do some proper training and get some fresh air and some sun. But um, in today's episode, I want to tell you a bit about one of the next best secrets that you can learn from Sydney's infamous Golden Mile, the King's Cross. And I'm probably sure sure everyone knows about the King's Cross. You you know about the King's Cross. So don't give me no bullshit, okay? Now, for a very long time, King's Cross was known to Australia pretty much as the drug and the red light capital of Australia. Especially Sydney, especially New South Wales. Like in Europe, you've got like De Wallen. You've got that in Amsterdam. That's probably arguably the world's most famous red red light district. Where you know you walk down the beautiful canals or, or ride on your on your bike while smoking some lemon haze or some uh, some Girl Scout cookies, going from coffee shop to coffee shop, eating some Dutch pancakes and all the the wonderful restaurants you have with the, the, the best munchies that you can uh, get access to. And you, you walk down, you can spot different supermodels standing in a window with the iconic red lights above their heads. Now, in Asia, you have, you've got uh, Bangalore Road in Phuket. In daytime, it's just like another street. But come sunset, it's brought to life. The road's closed off, no traffic can get through. And then there's just a rainbow of neon lights which like saturate the street. And then the entire street's just occupied by loud music, cheap beer, and uh, each and every bar and club uh, competing for customers. So in all honesty, you're walking down the street, uh, dodging like invitations to go into ping pong shows or to buy a tailor-made suit. But I guess that makes half the fun of it. Now, like I remember growing up in, in, in Sydney, in the Blue Mountains, and constantly hearing stories about people going to this infamous place. 
down in Sydney called King's Cross, the Golden Mile. I had my older sister Rachel, who she she came back home one Sunday, and uh, this was just after she had turned 18, and she told me about this uh, th- th- this long strip, which was lit up by neon lights, large crowds, all a bunch of young people having a good time, different bars and clubs, and how you could even go to a place where you drink your alcohol out of a teapot. I couldn't wait any longer. I was starting to get excited, waiting until I can go out. But, lucky for me and my mates, we soon heard about a little trick of the trade. We found out that you could pay $50, and a guy who goes by the name of The Phantom, he would go and very neatly and precisely scratch out the date on our driver's license, add a little a little hot sauce to it, and it would change it from saying born in 1990 and the date would get changed saying born in 1988. Boom! How good is that? So we all, we, I think pretty much all of us jumped onto that. So in the course of a few hours, sending off our, our, um, our driver's license to, to the Phantom, we would, we would uh, pretty much change from being a 16-year-old skinny little runt to 18-year-old men ready to order our first schooner of beer at the bar. How good. Now, now this worked perfectly for pr- pretty much all of us, besides one of my mates named Benny. He's known as the Maltese Falcon, okay? One day it was our friend Lisa's 21st birthday and a bunch of us sailed around Sydney Harbour for the day. And I, I, I think everyone was pretty much 18 by then. So I wasn't still using my, my fake ID by then. But uh, so everyone on the, on the boat was pretty much legal besides the Maltese Falcon. Okay, so we finished the boat cruise, cruising around Sydney Harbour in the sun, having some beverages. And then by the time it got to like four o'clock in the afternoon, we went to Star City Casino and had some more beverages, a little bit of a frolic on the pokies, uh, played some roulette. And then as you did, as everyone in, in Sydney does, you head out to, or what used to happen, head out, out to the infamous Golden Mile after, head to King's Cross. Now this was obviously before lockout laws and so on. But anyway, yeah, we were heading, uh, we headed down to the King's Cross. I can't remember exactly where we went. Um, there's a, there was a lot of shady places, but um, I think we might have gone to like Empire Hotel or maybe Soho. I, I can't recall exactly. But anyway, everybody was, was uh, in line being allowed in. In those days, the cross was absolutely thriving and the, li- the lines were like always long. And uh, security, they're usually oversized Kiwis or Samoans. And uh, they would go, go one by one, um, check our IDs, pat everyone down, ask how many drinks we've had, and then let us in. Now, they went through a, a bunch of us, and then they got to the Maltese Falcon. They asked him how old, how old he is. At that time, I, I can't even remember, I think he was 17. Um, but then... He was like, they were like going over the Maltese Falcon, having a look, sussing him out, asking how many drinks he's had. You know, some they were a bit more, you know, a bit more questionable at that stage. 
And then suddenly this, the large security Uso, the, the, the security guard just goes, snap, breaks the ID in half between his fingers. And then you just see a thin layer of plastic come off the ID where it had been modified by the Phantom. Uh-oh, that was the end of that. The Maltese Falcon, his night was ruined. I guess then he had to have a, a nice train ride back home as everybody partied into the night. But, uh, you know, you win some and you lose some. Anyway, now they've, uh, now, now they've changed the configuration of driver's licenses. So good luck to any modern day, you know, underages. I'm not sure how they do it, but um, yeah. I don't even know if they can still do it anymore, but I know before that, that's what everyone everyone was doing. But uh, yeah, through my youngest, I've always had some great times in King's Cross when it was thriving. And it was like always the most exciting place for everybody to go out growing up. Like regularly, we'd be reading reading uh, and staying up to date with the, the the famous underworld figure john ibrahim the the boss of the cross you know the, the last king of the cross and uh and their family wars that went went on with rival outlaw gangs he had that crazy brother mick ibrahim who looked like a complete psychopath and yeah for anyone who hasn't read his book it's called the the, the king of the cross i i recommend it it is definitely a banger but yeah there was like a, always a lot of kind of a, a lot of stories and myths growing up about the sex, drugs, prostitutes, showgirls, gangs. So the cross it always had, had you know it was very intriguing. <coughs> um, but yeah, back then the lions in the cross that they were massive. So if you weren't on a guest list, then you'd kind of be in trouble. But the, yeah, back then there were some fireplaces in the cross. There was, you know, Club 77, which uh, the, the, they had the renovation. But uh, it, the Club 77 was always always a banger. Soho, World Bar, Candies. Um, yeah, I know we, we hung out at a, at a bunch of different ones. But it, it was badass. But after living overseas for for a fair while, I, I was overseas and I would see everyone on social media going on about the lockout laws which were introduced in Sydney by the government in 2014. And uh, they had the objection of trying to cut out alcohol-fueled violence because too many people got on the beers too much and wanted to throw some knuckle sandwiches. But uh, yeah, soon enough they imposed these laws all over the venues in uh, the CBD entertainment areas and that ruled lockouts to be at like 1.30 a.m., so, so, so lockout, you can't get in after 1.30am and then last drinks at 3am. Like, what a joke. At the time, I was living in Madrid and then we would see all like, you know, people having, not riots, but you know, walking down the street with signs, all, all of Sydney going off their heads about this. And like, I'd be showing my friends in Madrid and it was quite humorous because like in Spain, you don't actually go out until like midnight. You go out then and then you don't get back home until like 7am in the morning. So then I was like over here, having over in Madrid, having a mad time and then everyone getting kicked out at like 3am. So what a joke. Anyway, I didn't really understand the reality of how bad everything had gotten in Sydney until early uh, early last year, I think it was around April, when I came back for one of my best mate's wedding, 
Uh, I think I was back for like two two weeks or three three weeks or so. Um, and then yeah, we went out in Coogee one one night, and we, we we went to you know the old Coogee Bay Hotel, the Pav. And I think I, I it might have been a Sunday. I'm, I can't really recall because I was kind of in vacation time, but. Uh, I know that the Coogee Bay, it closed at like 10 p.m. Super early. We were like, like kind of, it was like a slap in the face, being like halfway through having a mad night and then getting kicked out. So what happened? When I'm at, me and my mate Varga, we caught a taxi up to the cross from Coogee, hoping to be able to have drinks at any half-decent venue that we could find. But we were quick to learn that it's completely changed. All it is now is like a bunch of apartment complexes, like new terrace houses, and different construction developments. We definitely got punked pretty fucking bad. Or maybe we're just behind the times. But anyway, we learned the hard way, and the, the, and the more expensive way, paying fucking $60 up to see a bunch of um, construction sites. But anyway, we still had a good time and ran amok. But yeah, anyway... What we, what we realized that the bright neon lights and like the glittering logos that brightened up the infamous Golden Mile were all gone. Like, I'm not even sure today if the Coke sign is still there. If it is, let me know. But I remember in, I think it was around 2015, 2016. I think I was around 20, 20 24, maybe 2014. But I had an interview with Claude Neon. It's a, it's a company called Claude Neon. And it was for a project management position for the upgrade of the Coke kind, of the Coke sign. Okay, the Coke sign at the bottom of William Street, at the foot of King's Cross. Probably the most famous Coke sign in the world, in my opinion. And anyway, Claude Neon, they've had a long-term business relationship with Coca-Cola for like over 40 years, where they've continually fabricated, repaired, and like tended the sign. And like originally, the sign, like the, the sign, that came out in like the 70s. And that was originally made up of over 1,200 neon lights. And they ended up refurbishing it and upgraded it to LED lights, which obviously uses way less power, resulting in way less money spent on electricity, and it even gives access to, way easier access to change the, the, the sign to, to, to rainbow. You can change it to whatever color you want with just a click of a button. But I remember that they even, when they did upgrade the sign, <coughs> They auctioned off the old neon style lights of the Coke sign. They auctioned that off and it sold for over $100,000. And I'm pretty sure it was to someone from Lithgow. Like, random as. Good. I don't know if it went to charity or whatever. But uh, I don't, someone from Lithgow buying the, the, the Coke sign. Like, all I can imagine is some hillbilly off the show from Pickers. But um, what we can learn from the glittering neon lights and the historic Coke sign, which used to light up William, St- William Street and, and uh, the Golden Mile for 400 meters at the foot of King's Cross. Like, when you think of it, a huge billboard like the Coke sign, that used to be a key player in advertising and brand awareness back then. Like, yes, it still can be like that today to some extent, but in most cases, those marketing tactics, it's only sustainable and affordable for huge companies who have spending budgets to burn. 
like a $50 billion company like Coca-Cola. They can utilize strategies that most companies cannot. Coke has been marketing since the 50s, okay? A $50 billion company. Everyone already knows about Coke. Most people love Coke. They love the product. So Coca-Cola doesn't have to go out and provide value to all of its clients. Okay, if you don't know what Coke is, you're living under a rock. So some tactics that you can utilize for your own business, your own company, your product, service, or brand is utilizing a marketing strategy called direct response marketing, DRM. Like having a massive billboard can only be sustainable sustainable for large profitable, profitable businesses. Direct response marketing is great for small, medium, and large businesses. Direct response marketing is a marketing and sales strategy which is designed to evoke an on-the-spot response. So straight away, instead of uh, you know putting a sign up and hoping that people see it, you've got no idea. Direct response marketing it evokes an on-the-spot response and encourages a prospect to opt in and take action immediately. Usually, it can be by like signing up, sharing contacts, sharing emails, um, scheduling and making a call, reg- registering on a website, and so on. And like with direct response marketing, you can measure every single step of the way. Like if you if you or your business are paying twenty thousand dollars per per week for an advertisement billboard, you literally have no idea how many people have opted in and have become a client due to your billboard efforts. Like, who knows? You could have spent twenty thousand dollars for that week and only two people become your customer. Now, in the instance for King's Cross, Coke, they are, you know, obviously it was a lot of brand awareness and so on. They're a $50 million company. It, it's, and you know, it's got a lot of history behind the Coke sign. And like, you know, when you think of King's Cross, you think of the Coke sign. So they done great with them. But for direct, for smaller business and medium-sized businesses, ones that are, if you're just starting off, if you're, you know, if you're trying to scale, you should be looking at direct response marketing. For direct response marketing, you can measure the response of all marketing efforts. If you can't measure it, then it's stupid. Like that—that's that, Coke. Most companies aren't like Coke and spend that amount of money. You know, most companies can't spend the money for the Super Bowl ha- halftime in uh, Times Square, in New York, or having that fucking Coke sign down in the King's Cross. I don't. Who knows how much they they spend for that? If they if they own the building, whatever. But um, yeah, most people can't do that. So for small and medium-sized businesses, even if you're a large corporation still look at direct response marketing. I was just doing some consulting for a small business uh, about two weeks ago. And she has a brick and mortar business that sells different foods and, uh, and, and, and so on. And, and we were kind of going through everything. And she was running Facebook ads, Facebook ads to her traditional website. And like, I asked her what her ROI is, her return on investment and she said that she actually asked her ad specialist the other day and the ad specialist had no idea. 
Like if that's happening, that means it's time to get someone new running your Facebook ads. Now, if you have a small or medium-sized business, you will usually have three marketing challenges. Number one, generating leads. Number two, proving your return on investment. And as I said, if you can't track it, it's stupid. And then number three, securing a big enough marketing budget. And as a marketer, you should want to be able to spend as much money as possible to acquire a customer. You want, you want to, your goal should to be able to spend more money than your competition. So some of the things with direct response marketing, it, 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 it's perfect for these challenges for small businesses. With direct response marketing, it focuses on lead generation. It has a faster response rate rather than throwing a sign up hoping that someone uh, hoping that somebody sees it. It doesn't cost a lot and it's perfect to scale your business and your brand and it's totally trackable, which those things are exactly what you want. So guys, today some takeaways just like in the blink of an eye, just like the bright neon lights of King's Cross that got ripped down, same with our, our, our party and rules and regulations get, got ripped out from underneath us and got changed to a fucking construction site, that could be your job, getting taken down in the future. Next week, in two years, who knows? At this stage, there's a lot of different disruptors coming up. There's artificial intelligence. There's different automation processes where most bosses, teams, you know, people up the hierarchy or whoever's in charge, everyone's looking to make work easier and to save a few dollars. So start looking into how you can adapt and bring into your life some modern thinking, some marketing skills where you can scale from the ground up and add some new skills to your arsenal. And just have, have a good think about it. Because, you know, I'm, I'm already seeing a lot of people losing their job. I've got some mates that have uh, lost their jobs in the United States from, from fucking artificial intelligence. So start having to think about it. But anyway, thanks for tuning in to my quarantine rant of the day. Day seven, no, day eight out of 14. And let the good times roll, baby. Peace.